private equity firms hand over distressed companies to rivals. By Costas Marcellas, Will Luch and Ivan Livingston in New York. Private equity's biggest names including KKR and Bain Capital are handing over distressed companies to the lending arms of rivals, as they struggle with tough economic conditions. The rash of handovers to creditors underscores the problems many private equity firms face, as their portfolio companies contend with higher interest rates, stubborn inflation and supply chain issues. It also shows the growing influence of credit provided by the lending arms of the same large private equity firms. In recent years, private credit has been a faster-growing business than buyouts for many of the industry's biggest names, including Apollo, Carlyle and KKR. Bain Capital's European business has recently ceded ownership of German manufacturer Witter to KKR's credit arm, according to people familiar with the deal. Goldman-backed ink supplier Flint is also in talks with creditors about handing over control, according to several other people familiar with the details, while Carlyle is expected to hand over the keys at security company Presidiad to a group of lenders including Bain Capital's credit business. Meanwhile, KKR's private equity arm has lost control of German payments company Unser to a group of creditors including Goldman Sachs, Swiss private equity firm Partners Group and European credit manager Orcentra. In the US, KKR's investment in healthcare company Envision was wiped out in a deal for a group of senior lenders including Blackstone to take over the company, the Financial Times reported in May. We had many years of easy money and low interest rates where companies owned by private equity took advantage, said Janine Arnold, an executive at rating agency Moody's. Private equity continued to push the boundary on the debt those companies were taking on. That's okay when you have earnings growth, but then we've had COVID, Ukraine and interest rate increases. Private equity-owned businesses are struggling partly because some of the debt used to finance buyouts was not hedged against interest rate rises. As rates have gone up, loan repayments have increased and companies have had to spend more money servicing their debt. There was relatively little interest rate hedging by private equity firms for their floating rate debt, and now that rates have gone up, debt servicing costs have more than doubled over the past year and a half said Paul Goldschmidt, partner at investment manager King Street. A problem for lenders is that many of the loans that were used to finance the deals do not have strong covenants, contractual protections for creditors, which can help them identify issues with a company's balance sheet before it runs into serious problems. The key difference we see between now and the last cycle is that the trigger event now tends to be liquidity, given the lack of covenants during the last few years, said Manuel Martinez Fidalgo a co-head of restructuring at Hulahan Loki. In 2008 or 2010, you would sit down and have an early seat at the table. That isn't the case now. Adam Planer, co-chair of Decat's Financial Restructuring Group, said, the warning signs aren't being picked up early enough. The loose lending terms give private equity owners more flexibility to come up with solutions to keep their companies afloat, including taking on more debt. The nature of the loans created over the past few years allows the issuers to kick the can down the road as there are very few protections for existing lenders, said Dushyant Mehra, co-chief investment officer at hedge fund Hilden Capital Management. If there are a series of company defaults it could leave creditors with losses, as well as the logistical headache of having to own assets they did not intend to. For now, there is an alignment in incentives between private equity and private credit, said Alan Schweitzer, portfolio manager at credit hedge fund Beachpoint, which manages $15 billion in assets.
Private equity firms want their portfolio companies to keep going, and private credit firms don't have the infrastructure to take the keys of multiple companies simultaneously. Bloomberg LP, a financial data giant, overhauls its leadership ranks. Michael Bloomberg, the company's founder, said Vlad Klyachko would be its new chief executive and Jean-Paul Zamet its new president. Michael R. Bloomberg, the founder of the financial data colossus Bloomberg LP, announced a new chief executive and president on Monday, a possible indication of who will take over for him when he steps away from the company. Mr. Bloomberg, 81, also announced plans to appoint a new board to steer the business, a purveyor of data terminals that generates more than $12 billion in revenue annually. Vlad Klyachko, 54, Bloomberg's chief product officer, was appointed chief executive of the company, Mr. Bloomberg said in a memo to employees Monday. Jean-Paul Zamet, 55, formerly Bloomberg's chief commercial officer, was named president. Mr. Bloomberg said in his memo that he had no plans to step away anytime soon, noting that he was not taking on any new title. Neither Mr. Zamet nor Mr. Klyachko is replacing anyone at the company. The last chief executive at Bloomberg, Dan Doktoroff, stepped down in 2014, I'm sure these changes raise questions about me, so let me put them to rest, I'm not going anywhere, Mr. Bloomberg wrote. He added, I've never used a title in the company, so I won't change what I'll be called, just a mic. Mr. Bloomberg made his fortune by creating data terminals and a media empire that holds sway over financial professionals around the world. He has also been deeply involved in politics, including as a three-term mayor of New York. The company employs more than 23,000 people around the world. They include around 2,700 journalists, making it one of the biggest global news organizations, though the media division makes up a small fraction of the company's overall revenue. Mr. Bloomberg has been circumspect on the question of his succession in the past. A spokesman for Bloomberg told the Financial Times this year that Mr. Bloomberg frequently asked his senior executives whether they had more than one successor, adding that he had undisclosed succession plans for himself. A Bloomberg spokesman declined on Monday to comment on Mr. Bloomberg's succession plans. The company has said Mr. Bloomberg intends to give the company away to his philanthropic arm when he dies, if not sooner. This is not meant to be sensational, right? There's no need for us to sensationalize any data. The truth of the matter is, for the last two to three years now, guns have been the leading cause of death among kids. Physicians are treaters of the sick and preservers of the healthy. So there really is nothing else that a group of physicians would rally behind other than saving lives. This epidemic is uniquely American. Gun violence is a public health issue and a healthcare issue. This is not Democratic or Republican. This is just protecting humans. Sometimes you have to lose. Sometimes you have to push a boulder up a hill and it has to crash back down on you, but you won't succeed without ever trying.
America supports all these bills. And it needs to be the time now where the politicians realize that if government doesn't back us, that they're going to be voted out. Exactly. We have seen that when we take public health approaches, that we save lives. Motor vehicle accidents are no longer a number one cause of death of children because of safer cars and car seats. We can use that same public health approach to discuss guns and gun safety legislation and create meaningful change. How can we as medical experts help you guys? So what do you need? Do you need more doctors from your state that we can help provide you to provide evidence? Do you need us to come to hearings for you? We are here to collaborate with your office to whip these votes because we're sick of letting children die every day. A typical day is going from meeting to meeting, no breaks, labbing all day, and presenting our statistics and data and research. I usually try to open and say, my name is Dr. Emily Lieberman. I'm a pediatrician, a wife, a mother. I am now also a mass shooting survivor. And I have the unfortunate but unique perspective of now being a survivor of gun violence and also a pediatrician who treats people in the community who have suffered from gun violence. And I think that sets us apart from a lot of the other meetings. We live in Highland Park, which um, prior to July 4th of last year, I think anyone would say was probably one of the safest appearing communities in the country, or kind of Pleasantville, for lack of a better word. On our nation's most patriotic day, July 4th, our family woke up, put on 4th of July attire, and met with cousins and my parents. Our children were in the streets, there was laughter, we're waving to politicians. And then all of a sudden, there is a horrible popping sound overhead. And it becomes clear very quickly that this is a gun. Seven people were killed and more than 48 others were injured after a gunman opened fire at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, Illinois. According to the Gun Violence Archive, it was one of 647 mass shootings that took place in 2022. Unfortunately, we've learned that we can't keep our children safe when most of these weapons are on the streets. But what we can do is help prevent these shootings from continuing to occur, which is what we are here to do now for the rest of our life. See, this is a pediatric surgery OR, and so typically when a patient rolls in, they're going to be lying down here. This is where the anesthesiologist is. And then once the patient is asleep, the whole team kind of functions, you know, very much as a well-oiled machine. We've here on the front lines of seen, have felt that 350% increase in the number of kids with gun injuries last year here in New York. The teams are getting increasingly fatigued. The trauma from having to deal with not only children who have gun injuries, but their families, and constantly telling families that they've either lost a loved one to a preventable disease, or that their kid is now disabled for life or brain dead. Then little children, all the organs are closer together. And as a result, every bullet can injure that many more organs. And is that much more devastating than let's say a bullet injury in an adult. We have a universal screening program here in our emergency departments where we actually screen all patients for firearm injury risk. 
If you scream positive for that, there are resources we can give you that help break that cycle of violence before the gunshot even happens. Morning. 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 AAP guidelines suggest that the best advice is to not have a gun in the homes. But for those gun owners that actually do have guns, research shows that only 50% of them are safely storing it. So something that we give out to our patients are these cable locks. This will go through the unloaded empty firearm. Just get one spot there, you'll lock it. Key comes out, you have a safe firearm. When we talk about gun violence, we are referring to firearm-related suicides, unintentional injuries, otherwise known as accidental injuries. We're talking about intentional firearm injuries, which could be firearm violence slash assault, or in a small sliver of cases, things like public mass shootings. And it's really important that we start having this discussion in a very nuanced, granular way, because that is the only way that we're going to have a productive conversation around potential solutions. You can imagine that the solutions to firearm suicide are far different than the solutions needed to stop mass shootings, which are far different than the solutions that are needed for firearm violence. We cannot lump it all together. I've lived in the same house uh, my whole life, and I, I don't see myself moving anytime soon. We're here to stay, city kid. Growing up in this neighborhood, it's done violence, and it's always been prevalent, always something I've seen around me. It just never dawned on me that it could affect me in a way that would change my life. The night of this shooting, uh, we had just went on a family outing, came back home, everyone was in bed. I decided to go back outside for a charger, and I was sitting in the passenger seat of the car, and all of a sudden, someone runs up to the driver's side. They said something, waved some hand symbols, and, and that was it. They just started unloading. When we got to the hospital, the only injury was gunshot wounds to the back. I had a nicked vertebrae, a severed spinal cord, and uh, both my lungs were ruptured, internal bleeding the whole nine yards. I still have the bullet in my chest today. I was in the hospital for about six weeks. I was on my mother's insurance. It was an HMO, so we got lucky we didn't have to pay for the visit, but the visit itself was north of $100,000. When I left the hospital, I thought the hardest part of the journey was done, but that was not true. When I got home, I realized I got steps in the front and the back, and now I can't use my legs. How am I going to get up there? Well, insurance providers tend to cover the majority of medical bills immediately following a shooting. Survivors say costs continue to rack up over time. Physical therapy or home renovations may not be covered by insurance, and finding programs to help cover the costs can be a challenge. As a result, many patients have turned to crowdsourcing to fundraise for ongoing care needs. There's a, a lot of things that have had to come out of pocket because they're just niche enough for the insurance not to cover them, but uh, important enough that you actually need them with a disability. So I would say roughly maybe 20 to 30,000 total as of now has been paid out of pocket. Treating gunshot wounds and patients is extremely expensive. We know that treating a patient with gun injuries, for example, is three times more expensive than treating any other type of trauma. This really speaks to the complexities of the wounds, the complications that result from it, and the long, ongoing disabilities that really require a lot of intense medical management. So here we're seeing that gun violence costs the United States um, over $550 billion per year, uh, which is an extraordinary amount. Our politicians who enabled this assault weapons ban in 1994 truly were trailblazers at the time. And sadly, the clause was written that it would sundown in 10 years. So from my perspective, we're asking Washington, D.C. to reinitiate a law that was a law. We're not rewriting the history books here. We are asking them to continue the history books.
the rates of gun violence are only going up as we delve deeper and saw how much of a problem this is. These underserved communities, the health disparities, specifically brown and black communities, having horrific day-to-day -day gun violence and losing many more brown and black people to gun violence, we realize that we have to really broaden as physicians some of our lobbying. We do know that gun safety policies, such as assault weapon bans, background checks, waiting periods, licensing requirements that most gun owners actually do support, will save lives. And then we know that other policies, for example, that address the root causes of structural racism, inequity, will improve firearm violence in inner city communities. So my question really always is, how can we have that conversation in a way that legitimizes both sides and their concerns that can really lead to productive solutions rather than just this them versus us discussion. Future, I'm going probably, probably, and you're probably going to Catherola, Luna. If this is the public health crisis that we believe it is.